my friends, and welcome to an extra spooky episode of the Seeds and Weeds podcast. Our guest today is Marta McDowell. We're going to be talking about her brand new book, Gardening Can Be Murder. Autumn is the season of harvest. The nights grow longer as the world around us has reached its peak and now begins to wither and decay as it begins its downward spiral back into the earth. Those of us that live in places where the natural world can express the full power of the seasons, we watch as things slowly become brown and return to the soil once again. This is the time of year where cultures around the world have historically celebrated the season of death and rebirth. From the ancient Celtic holiday of Samhain to the Mexican Dia de los Muertos and even our modern Halloween, people have long understood the intimate connection between life and death. Much like the seeds that we collect from our gardens, new life can only exist as the remnants of the passing of lives that have reached their end. This isn't a time to mourn, but a time to celebrate. A few years ago, I was working on a story about winter radishes for the Baker Creek catalog, and I learned about the Oaxacan celebration Noche de Rabanos, or Night of the Radishes. During this annual celebration, artists will carve radishes into elaborate shapes and figures and holiday-themed scenes. It reminds me of our autumn tradition of carving pumpkins for Halloween. This tradition can be traced back to the ancient Celts, who would actually carve faces into turnips as an attempt to ward away evil spirits, specifically Stingy Jack, whose spirit was said to wander the Irish countryside. While I might not be too concerned with Stingy Jack visiting us here in Michigan, our family still enjoys carving pumpkins every fall to decorate our front porch. Just a few miles down the road, a local farmer sells an assortment of pumpkins of various sizes, shapes, and colors. We like to support our local growers, so we purchase pumpkins from his stand every year. Along with the large carving pumpkins, he also offers smaller pie pumpkins for only $2 a piece. We love to stock up on these for the wintertime. We make tasty pies and bread from the flesh of the fruits, but we also collect the seeds, which can be roasted and enjoyed as snacks or pressed for their delicious oil. Most commercial pumpkin seed oil is pressed from Styrian pumpkin seeds, an Austrian variety pumpkin that produces a hullus seed, but any pumpkin or squash seed can be pressed for its oil. If you're interested in learning more about how easy it is to press seed and nut oils at home, I'll leave a link down in the show notes to our website where you can find my book on the topic or even get yourself an oil press and start making your own. To celebrate the spooky nature of the season, we have a very special guest on today's show, Marta McDowell. She's a renowned author, horticulturist, and educator. Her work has appeared in popular publications like Women's Day, Country Gardening, and the New York Times. She's also a regular contributor to the British journal, Hortus. Martha's writing typically follows the relationship between the pen and the trowel, that is, authors in their gardens. And today, she's joining us on the podcast to talk about her new book, Gardening Can Be Murder. Marta McDowell, I am so excited to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, Bevan. Now, I got to say, when your publicist first reached out to me about having you on the podcast here, I was um, a little starstruck, we could say. I am a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you. You got this brand new book that just came out. It's called Gardening Could Be Murder, How Poisonous Poppies, Sinister Shovels, and Grim Gardens Have Inspired Mystery Writers. And it is a super fun read. But before we jump into talking about the book, let's give our listeners maybe a little bit of background. You're a very accomplished writer, of course, but can you tell us about your history and experience as a gardener? 
Absolutely. So I came to gardening as an adult. So when I got my first little, you know, property, suddenly I got interested in growing things. And so for 20 years, I gardened, you know, afternoons, evenings, weekends, vacations, because I had a corporate job, you know, 21 years in, I like to say they funded my midlife crisis, because I was really done with it anyway. And, you know, I got a buyout package and got to transition to full-time gardening or at least part-time gardening and part-time writing. So I grow, I would say, mostly ornamentals. I always intend to have more edible plants. Uh, I have some raised bed vegetable boxes, a lot of herbs. My rhubarb is tucked into my flower beds. And and I have a couple of community garden plots. You know, I just love plants. I guess they're always a little messy because, you know, basically I'm not out there enough because I should be weeding more and writing less or not. Well, the best garden is a messy garden. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Now, some of the other books that you've written, and I'm sure our listeners are familiar with, uh, they include Unearthing the Secret Garden, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and uh, my personal favorite, Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life. The way that you write these books, you know, you write about the authors and the characters and these places, but it's through the lens of plants, how they gardened and what they grew. And I think it's just such an interesting way to approach the topics. How were you inspired to write these books or to approach the topic from this angle? So it happened entirely by accident. I was driving across Massachusetts on a business trip, visiting insurance agencies. Doesn't that make your heart go pitter-pat? And um, I had a spare afternoon on my calendar and I picked up a brochure in, you know, one of those highway rest areas and drove north to Amherst and went to Emily Dickens, the Emily Dickinson Museum. And I always gardened, as I mentioned. And so what I found out was Emily Dickinson, who I had always admired, you know, I don't always understand her poetry, but I always respect it, that she gardened. And it was like a door open for me. So I always like to say Emily Dickinson changed my life. So Emily Dickinson was the first author I wrote about. And from then on, it just sort of cascaded. So I love to read. I love to garden. And, you know, this has been a really great way to bring those two things together and talk about gardening from a different point of view. And now in your new book, Garden Could Be Murder, you're, you're writing in a similar way here through the lens of plants. But this time the subject is murder mysteries. So, I mean, how did this come to be? Why why are gardens and plants such a prominent theme in this particular genre of literature in, in murder mysteries? Well, I think to some degree, you know, all gardeners are trying to sort of impose order on nature, which, you know, nature can be chaotic. And so we try to make it productive in various ways, but it's still saying, you know, I want this plant here and that plant there and this other plant I have decided is a weed. So 
you know, that's kind of, I think, the same thing with crime fiction. So the classic detective story, you start out generally with a dead body. It's very, you know, it's messy. We have various clues. And then at the end, it's tidy and all, you know, sort of there's, it's all wrapped up. If only my garden, you know, were, were equally tidy at the end <laughs> of a weeding session. But, um, you know, I think it kind of, a murder mystery orders the universe. Universe. And maybe it's like a, a false order because we can never really impose order, but it's nice to dream. That's interesting. You know, when you think about that, that comparison. So literally the, the title of the book, Gardening Can Be Murder. It really can. Yeah. You know, it's like today here in New Jersey. So it's October. It is about 85 degrees. It's kind of humid. And you go, really? It's autumn. Come on. <laughs> Why am I sweating out? I was digging a hole this morning to move this gigantic, uh, you know, perennial sunflower. You know, I had to cut it up into pieces because it had gotten too huge. And I thought, wait a minute, there's something wrong about this. It's supposed to be fall. It's supposed to be cool. But it wasn't. It's not cool here either. It is so warm, unseasonably warm for sure. Yeah. So those days, it can be murder. You know, like you face this this bed that you had weeded and all the weeds have come back and you go, I can't believe this. You know, I would I have this kind of homicidal feeling that, you know, really want to kill these weeds. And I guess if I got to go, I'd rather go in my garden. Yeah. Well, you know, and then if you're a mystery writer, I don't write fiction, but, you know, I imagine that you start to look around for plot elements. Oh, God, no pun intended. And so you've got a dead body. You've got to dispose of it. You know, you've got to be able to find it. Well, it's you know, you've got a shovel. You've got a garden bed. That's a possibility. Good fertilizer. Yeah. Well, yes, I suppose so. You know, I think this book, it's such a fun read. I love it. You know, there's there's plenty of information on the history and the horticulture of these different plants that you touch on. There's snippets of the stories. There's profiles of the characters. I, and I love the way that you organize the whole book. The chapters are things like setting and motive and suspects and clues. What was the thought process? How, how did you lay out the book? What were you thinking when you did that? So this book is different from most of the other things I've written. So if you write about one... Uh, say, author or artist and their garden, you can approach it seasonally, you know, a season through their garden. Uh, you know, you can approach it by the periods in their life, or you can overlay the two. And that you're writing about one person and one, uh, you know, set of writings. In this case, it was like, oh, I've got all of these authors and all of these, you know, sort of murder plots, how to put it together. So what I settled on was, you know, the, again, the classic detective story, they're looking for, you know, what's the motive? What were the means? In other words, how did the per the victim get murdered? Uh, who had opportunity? What was the setting? Obviously, you have a detective, you have suspects, you have clues. And so I grouped them that way. And it let me kind of, you know, again, put a pattern on it that would be recognizable and that I could deal with because, you know, you can imagine, I think I read a hundred murder mysteries or in some cases reread them. So I needed a, you know, a structure, a skeleton, if you will, to hang them on. 
Yeah, I was going to ask that too. I know that you're busy because you're you're a writer, you're you're gardening, you're doing all these things. How did you even find time to read all those books? Well, there was this little global pandemic. See, aha, aha. So here I am. You know, it's it's me and my spouse, and at the time, our our very long lived cockatiel, who was no longer with us, sadly, and we weren't going many places. I had my garden. That's great, but. I, you know, I, reading is another outlet for me. And so is writing. And I couldn't do archival research, right? Imagine, you know, if I'm writing about Laura Ingalls Wilder, I go to an archive. In her case, it was in Iowa. And, uh, you know, I sit there and I go through files and write things down. You know, that's just archival research. And that wasn't accessible. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I had written an article a long time ago for a little English garden journal called Hortus about this topic of murder mysteries, you know, typically British and gardening. So I thought, you know, I think I could make a book out of it. And so I pitched it to my editor. And we went with it. And God bless the local public library because they just kept working, you know, through the dark days and would, you know, get me books through the library system and put them in paper bags. And we'd go down there, you know, and go in our masks and go in the back hallway where they left them out in alphabetical order. So, you know, really hats off to the librarians. Absolutely. Hats off to the librarians indeed. You know, one of the things when I was reading the book that I kind of felt you're discussing, obviously, you know, detectives and and suspects and clues, like you were saying, but I kind of got the impression when I was reading it, that as the author, in a way, you were like the detective too. Oh, good point. Very good point. Yes, I was trying to, you know, unravel this question. And it was the question that you posed, which is, what is it about the garden that makes it suitable to crime fiction? And I will say, you know, if you walk out into your, you know, maybe you have a barn or a tool shed, or in my case, my tools are in the garage, and they're all hung up on nails and on a on pegboards. And I look around and you go, yep, that would be a good murder weapon. That would be a good murder weapon. I mean, you know, I've got all these like pruners. I like my tools sharp. I like them clean, big, heavy shovels, this giant mattock, you know, which is like a big pointy, I don't even know what you'd call it, pickaxe or, you know, with a flat blade and a pointy end. Uh, I have very rocky soil here. And then, you know, you walk around your garden and you go, yep, that plant could kill you. That could kill you. That could kill you. (laughs) So this isn't a manifesto, right? You're not plotting the perfect murder, right? No, although I I think my spouse was a little worried. Early on in the book, you talk about how there's two different types of gardeners. There's uh, specialists who focus on one particular type of plant, like roses, and then generalists, folks that just want to grow a little bit of everything. You say that you're more of a generalist type of gardener, but if you had to specialize in one particular plant or species, what do you think it would be? Oh, I'd probably go for succulents. I have a you know, cacti and succulents. I have a weakness for them. For one thing, they they withstand a lot of neglect, which, you know, that's sometimes they do get neglected, especially my house plants. And I just think they're very funky in textures and colors. And you don't get blooms very often, but when you do, they're really like alien and it's like something from outer space. Uh, and I'm always like, if I go to one of these botanical gardens, gardens with a big conservatory complex, I'm always attracted to the desert house. I've never 
never lived in the desert, but I think that's probably what I'd go for. Oh, that's interesting. And there is something to be said, especially at a botanical garden or for the desert house. It's it's so unique and different than anything you'd find anywhere else. Yeah, I think especially because I grew up in the Northeast where I still live. So with the exception of prickly pear cactus, which is actually native to New Jersey, you know, one species of it, we don't really have hardy cacti here. So, uh, you know, it's it's just really fun for me to, you know, collect them, trade them with friends. It's easy to make cuttings. You know, they're very generous plants in their way. I love it. You know, right now I would try to wrap up this interview by asking something like, what's next for Marta McDowell? But I happen to know what's next for Marta McDowell. You've already got a new book already available for pre-sale. It's coming out in January from Timber Press. Could you give us a little sneak peek of what we could expect? Oh, absolutely. So I wrote a book I should know off the top of my head when it came out, but it was called All the President's Gardens. And it started with George Washington and it went all the way up to the Obama administration. Wow. Yes. So, I mean, that was another book. It's hard to fit in, you know, in between two covers, but it moves along. Believe it or not, it's a very chatty read. And so my publisher, Timber Press, asked, you know, could I update it? They wanted to bring out a paperback edition. So I did. I updated it right up to the Biden administration and it's going to be out in paperback. And so there you go. That is super cool. So I got to ask, because I'm not familiar with the president's gardens. I, you know, I mean, obviously, I know a little bit about George Washington, certainly Thomas Jefferson. I know a lot about what he would grow. Is there that much of a difference from one administration to the next, the type of stuff they grow in the gardens? Yeah, you'd be amazed. It, it changes the way people's fashion changes and the way maybe like the interior decorating of the White House changed. Over the decades, there have been so many iterations of the garden from what really started out as a small farm uh, because it was mostly vegetables being grown, always trees, but then there's been, you know, a colonial revival garden, there's been an Italianate garden, then the rose garden. So there was really plenty to uh, illustrate my point, which is you could actually see the whole history of American gardening roll out on that one property. Property. Uh, you know, even if you if you wanted to look back, even though we don't have any images of it, right? That property, the you know, the acreage that we call the White House grounds, was tended in its way by the local Native Americans who were there before uh, you know people that look like me showed up. Really interesting. That is really interesting. I'm looking forward to that. But for right now. Gardening can be murder. How poisonous poppies, sinister shovels, and grim gardens have inspired mystery writers. It's now available everywhere the books are sold. And Marta, how can folks find you that want to connect with you online? They just look up my name. I have a website, martamcdowell.com, and there's contact information there. That's awesome. Marta, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. That was awesome. Thank you. Well, there we go. And here we are at the end of another show. Thanks again to Marta McDowell for joining us and to all of you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can always show your support by joining our Patreon. You can find that link and many more at seedsandweedspodcast.com. This show is edited and produced by everyone here at Small House Farm. And the music you're enjoying right now is the perfectly titled Happy Halloween by Audio Coffee. I'm your host, Bevan Cohen. 
be cautious in those gardens, my friends, and we'll see you next time. Howdy, friends. Bevan here. You know, the Seeds and Weeds podcast is made possible in part by Baker Creek Heirloom Seed Company, rareseeds.com. They're America's top source for rare and heirloom varieties from around the world, and they're publisher of the Whole Seed Catalog. Their 2024 catalog is chocked full of heirloom goodness, new varieties, recipes, stories, and gorgeous photographs. You can order yours now at rareseeds.com.